Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education. And today I have the pleasure of having Fran Blackwood join me. And we are both located in the province of British Columbia. And so I, I had uh, Fran Blackwood on in the last episode where we talked about her journey as a parent advocate. And she is actually my mother. So I am very aware of the journey, the time, the effort, and the frustration she has gone through over the decades of work she's put into this. And the frustration she feels about still seeing no change within the province of British Columbia and across Canada. Uh, most of listeners realize that I am an individual with severe dyslexia and I had a difficult time going through the public education system and went had to be placed in the private education system. I do have a sister that had the same situation and now two of my children um, are dyslexic and having to get outside tier three support because the support available within the schools is not enough. So thank you so much for joining me today, Fran. I It's really an honor to be on the same stage, trying to share this information with you. And today we're really going to go into what you've done, what you've seen, and why we need to recognize, as Greta Thunberg said, that the house is on fire. We should be running out screaming, not just sitting back and saying, okay, um, it, it's not the same as a climate change issue, but is a huge social justice issue where we can easily see 40% of kindergarten students in each classroom not given access to the right to read from the beginning just because of the instructional practices used within their classrooms. Right. And then the continuum of that, because K to three is when we're supposed to teach our kids how to read in order to read to learn in grade four. And we're not doing that effectively. And teachers know that we are not, and they are asking for training and they're not getting it. And it's a social equity issue. And I uh, that people in leadership positions in British Columbia have noticed in the past. And that's why I would like to give some history of that because we've been discussing this at the provincial level, well, since I started volunteering in 1996. And we had people we need to acknowledge, such as Charles Ungeleiter, who was a deputy minister of education, and Linda Siegel, who's done a lot of work in special ed review and research. And then across Canada, the um, Concordia University with their Center for the Study of Learning and Performance. I have worked with all of these people who volunteered with them as well. And that's what I'd like to share, some of those experiences where we have been blocked in the past. And it's, it's going forward, trying to learn from that. And, and reaching out to other people with the resources to create perhaps a new entity to follow what's happening even 
So how, how would you like me to start, Catherine? Well, I think, we, you know, the important thing to note is starting out, we or you and individuals within the province of British Columbia have been advocating for best practices that would be now considered the science of reading or structured language and literacy with having, you know, um, province-wide screening of students at a young age to identify a risk of reading failure and providing in-class support uh, and quality instruction to reduce the numbers. So let's just give listeners a taste of the training that you have had personally. So you're not just some parent advocate that doesn't know about best practices. You've actually had a significant amount of training. And even though you don't have a bachelor's of education behind your name, you have learned a lot. Yes. Um, My background, just a quick overview. um, I started out in nursing and learned about evidence-based practices and then married a doctor who did clinical and basic science research, who, again, the medical model is evidence-based practice and peer review. When Catherine was in uh, grade three and four, she began working on one tutor and I was introduced to the Written Dyslexia Society. And at that time we had to use the mail to get all the information. I joined, all of the information was peer reviewed. I learned a great deal from them. Started going to their conferences, which are basically five day events, hearing the world's leading researchers in um, brain science um, and also in reading research. I um, became president of the International Dyslexia Association, BC branch in 1998, and was president till 2002 and acting president off and on till 2004. And during that time with the IDA, I was also on branch council and um, on the International Affiliates Subcommittee. I had the good fortune of working with Susan Hall, who is, was the parent and became uh, the founder of the 95% group and um, had the good fortune of being invited to close conferences at the Dyslexia Foundation, going to these very special places in Crete. Um, and I was on Russia on a tour of educational facilities there. That was a privately sponsored one. During my time um, in IDA as president, we develop, I developed partnerships with other members on the board with literacy, um, with literacy BC, the Vancouver Board of Trade. I was recruited by um, Society for the Advancement of Excellence in Education to commission research in education. And then Concordia University recruited me to be the Vancouver volunteer to promote their Center for the Study of Learning Performance Learning Toolkit and Vancouver School Board, which is something I like to share <laughs> how that came about and Knowledge Network attended many of the things I went to and I have to credit Sarah McDonald who was director of programming who um, we had contacted about doing a webcast we were Knowledge Network's very first client for a webcast in the time when video conferencing was happening and we 
put those on for six months out of the year. And Sarah said, let's create some ESA public service announcements to celebrate success in literacy. So we celebrated the North Vancouver work that Linda um, Siegel started and how the teachers were, you know, not sure they, if, if they could reach 95%, but they did. And the second one was on um, Westminster where they brought all the parents in. They put the learning, uh, learning performance standards on the wall and everybody had the same language, parents and teachers, and they had meetings together and spend an hour and a half on literacy each day. Uh, and the third one was in Mount Curry where they were using assistive technology or the uh, computer software called the Academy of Reading and Academy of Math. With Knowledge Network, after uh, doing two webcasts with them, Sarah McDonald asked me to come on as an advisor and fundraiser for a vid uh, documentary on dyslexia. And I said, look, and she just wanted to do a half an hour. I said, can't do it in half an hour, you have to do an hour. So we ended up doubling our fundraising. We created the documentary that followed four families, interviewed Dr. Siegel and Pamela Otley, and we covered the dyslexia research project through the UBC Department of Ophthalmology. The documentary, um, our family was included. Catherine, her sister, and myself were in that documentary as well. Um, it went on to win two International Medical Media Awards, the Freddie Awards, and um, Dyslexia International, thanks to, I think, Dr. Siegel's connections, asked to translate it into French for a UNESCO conference. Um, so we did the fundraising for that, and it was translated into French, or dubbed into French. Um, it traveled the world, I believe, in Catherine, and millions of people, I mean, over a million people saw the public service announcements on success and literacy, and I'm not sure how many people saw the webcast, but it was streamed by Knowledge Network, it was shown on Knowledge Network. So we had a great deal of public awareness about dyslexia through not 2003 to 2007, I think, when the documentary came up, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. And um, so that's my experience. I started to volunteer in a classroom that was featured in the documentary at private Nick School. Vancouver School District had about five, four or five extended learning assistance classrooms in 2008. And I started volunteering in one that was featured in the documentary. The teacher was a whole language teacher um, and um, tried to stop me from talking about long short vowels. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm working in the training and phonographics training and the Miguel training. You're going to hear about long and short vowels. And long and short of it is he became an Orthogallingham trained teacher. It was implemented in the classroom. And at, also at the same time, I joined the Rotary Club of Vancouver because Rotary International was able to provide the Auto Skills Academy of Reading and Academy of Math for about $60 per student. Tyson Schober and Thrive started using it over the summer with kids. We put it into that classroom. And together with uh, direct instruction um, of the Auto Skills or the Academy of Reading, kids were pre-screened and then put it there below their level and taken through um, to about a grade eight level of reading and controlled fluency aspects. Scores went up, we ended up getting it into the high school. 
the high school teacher at Windermere High School was screening their kids and found out that two thirds of the kids coming into grade eight couldn't do math, they were well below grade level math. They would put them on the grade level, on the Academy of Math. Those that couldn't understand word problems started on Academy of Reading. And the first cohort of students who were in 12 classes, 20 students graduated from grade 12, and, but I'm sorry, 18 of them ended up taking grade 12 math because they've had Academy of Reading, Academy of Math and graduated. And those students were quite likely going to quit school, but because they had the Academy of Reading, they were able to go forward. And so let me just so, stop you for a second here. Sure. So for $120 per student in grade eight, you were able to get these students who were not reading at grade level and who did not do math at grade level right. so that they were able to do math and graduate high school when otherwise they would not have they would have likely dropped out and faced significant problems. Correct. So the hundred and twenty dollar investment. But what we ended up doing, lives. yeah, what we ended up doing was buying um, school licenses. So what you paid were for licenses, and one license could accommodate six children during the course of the day. And we also have a testimonial video from principals, parents, teachers, and um, students who were on it. And these were kids in this uh, ELAC classes from grades four to seven, who could get one to four years in a small classroom with 15 students. And um, they were circulated through the program doing 20 to 25 minutes a day on this program. Plus they were getting small group or one-to-one -one instruction and a couple of the teachers took Fort and Gillingham training. And um, then in the general classroom, the learning assistant teacher in one of them was a principal and said, we can have 20 kids into the computer room all on a, the computer program. And because they could administer how when somebody was having difficulty, they could give them one-to-one -one instruction as required. It improved the school culture. Kids saw that these kids who were not doing well, gaining skills, they had kids asking to go on the software program because there was school leadership. The principals believed in it. One of them was the learning assistant teacher. In another school, it was really a vice principal. I've seen how it works and thrive Tyson Schoberg had his own website and gave so much away. He, he was just amazing. But now he has shared that they've been cut back from four years for the students to one year. And it's even as learning assistants, his assistant had an Orton Gillingham training and she's been cut back to only, I think, one of the morning time now, the afternoon. And they're getting people kids with more than just dyslexia into their classroom because of behavioral issues and things like that. So, and Rick so Moore. Let's, so, let's talk ahead. about this classroom for a little bit. Okay. So right now, 
you know, the, the big words are MTSS or multi-tiered system of support and response to intervention. And when we're talking about a multi-tiered system of support, you have the first tier, which is whole group instruction. You have the second tier, which is small group within the classroom. And you have the tier three, which is the intensive support. Yeah. Now, this is what is hugely missing across the province of British Columbia, a place where students can go in their community to get the intensive support that they need to learn how to read. Now, when Thrive was running at its best with that, um, the, the teacher that had the training, the assistant teacher who was able to support these students, we were seeing lives being changed and transformed in ways that could only be dreamed for, for students across the province. And this was a program that wasn't asking parents to spend money out of their own pockets to ensure that their children are given access to the basic human right of reading. So how many students were in this classroom in a year? I, I don't have that number. 15, 15 students. So one teacher full-time and a special education assistant um, was there, but she had worked, has she's been there many years as worked in Willingham training. So the kids would rotate and Tyson would review their psychoeducational assessments and he would develop a daily learning plan, a plan of tasks for independent learning um, in the morning, but it was all focused on um, essentially the reading program in the morning and in the afternoon with the math and sciences. And he also taught children at the time when I was there on how to make um, films, um, which was part of the literacy instruction. But that, um, because of his website, and people seeing it, um, we ended up in Rotary giving the software to all the extended learning assistance classrooms. And that's why there is a testimonial video called Rotary and Cows, if people Google it. And you will hear the teachers and the parents. One lady had triplets, and this is anecdotal now, but only one made it into an extended learning assistance classroom, and he taught his brothers because it was scaffolded teaching phonological awareness right up into morphology and uh, comprehension. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore because of the platform um, is too old. And so now they use Lexia. And Lexia is a program that the vast majority of schools have access to. And if we're just looking at the numbers, when we're having a structured literacy or a science of reading approach to teaching reading. And say if we modeled it after what Dr. Linda Siegel did in North Vancouver in the late 90s and early 2000s, or even improved on some of those programs, she was getting it so about 98% of students yes. were reading. And if we had one of these classrooms in a school of 500, we would be able to reach those 
small percentage of students that still needed the intensive intervention that would make it so they could catch up with their peers. And particularly if the teacher has the training to do the one-to-one peer three instruction. That isn't always the case uh, for posting because people get those positions on seniority, not necessarily because of the training. So it's a matter of looking at that, customizing the job application to make sure that the learning assistance teacher actually has had um, the science of reading training, not reading recovery, but the science of reading. Right. Now, the huge thing that we hear is, you know, the need for an inclusive model, uh, an inclusive education, making sure that all students feel welcome in the classroom are getting the support that they need. From my personal experience, I feel that uh, when you have a student that is severely dyslexic, it is better to pull them out and give them the support so they can catch up instead of falling behind in the classroom. As a parent, what is your perspective? And also as someone that volunteered in that classroom, do you feel that the students would have been better served in the, the whole school environment where they'd be in a classroom not getting that same support? Well, I, I did a lot of media when I was president of the International Dyslexia Association, radio, television, um, and newspaper interviews. And my response to that was, inclusion is exclusion for our children because they cannot keep up. And if you, it is the, um, I'm blanking on it, you know, if you don't know how to read, you know, the, you know, the Siegel's plumber fellow, the more you read, the more you do read, what's it called? Yeah. It's quite biblical. In any event, our kids and children who cannot read are not able to read and get the vocabulary they need to keep up. And it is demoralizing. I was once quoted that the inability to read is a silent, invisible, and demoralizing killer of an individual's desire for learning in life. Apprehended this killer can be remediated and the individual becomes a very positive contributor to society and to their own family. And that's if we cannot help. And these classrooms, I know that some of them, can, you know, it's because dyslexia can run in family. I was in an East Vancouver school. We had kids whose families were in desperate situations and they were able to get one-to-one -one training uh, and assistance and computer technology and they blossomed. And I, you know, the first two kids I, I helped, I showed them with sticks showing them. We had 26 letters and 44 sounds in the English language. And I had the 25% little sticks for math. And I, so I showed them three quarters and I said, more than 75% of them are predictable and it's patterns and I can teach them to you because those sounds you know, the letter A has 10 sounds if you consider the Canadian A, and there's 10 different spellings. And as a parent, you know, and I told them, as a parent for me, knowing that if you look at a word and underline the vowels or the vowel combinations, 
you can figure out how many syllables there are in it. I never knew that as a parent. I didn't know how I really knew how to read. I just knew how to read. I didn't know how to explain. But once you get these little zingers, and even as teachers, if you give them, I went to Anita Archer presentation for the University of Oregon. She has a fabulous five-hour presentation on basically structured literacy. She gave scope and sequence. She said, I do it, we do it, you do it. You know, just demonstrating. Um, and if any teacher, any pre-service teacher saw that or any in-school teacher, they would get so much out of just one day if you get the proper instruction and have the leadership and backup. They didn't say my, you know, I did say my background was a bit of nursing, but I also was in business and um, five principles of marketing, as I said, getting the right product in the right place for the right people, the right promotion at the right price at the right time. And we know from research, you know, the critical and sensitive periods through brain development, for language development are in the early years from the Fraser Mustard study. And then in school, we can identify with over 90% accuracy in kindergarten, which children will have contributing problems. And given that continuum of instruction to grade three, we should get 95 to 98%. Um, and this is what we can do if we band together and have the leadership. And we, I tried to introduce, Linda Siegel's work was here, but she was a, you know, there was a quote that I nominated her for award once that she was a prophet in her own land that doesn't get recognized. So brought in Frank Wood, because I met Frank Wood in Tweet at a Dyslexia Foundation conference. He was talking about his predictive assessment of reading. We brought him in because teachers did not want the foundational skills assessment. That was brought in to be a thermometer reading uh, for social equity and to make sure that all the children in the province were held to the same bar. So the Ministry of Education knew which groups to support if they were not meeting expectations. And of course, the Fraser Institute started ranking schools and that created a great deal of problems because teachers didn't want it. But the foundation skills assessment came in 20 minutes, computerized results that were both diagnostic and predictive and, um, and prescriptive of how to help kids. And we took that to the Minister of Education and they didn't want it. They said screening was a um, district issue. Well, many districts don't have the scope and the, and the capacity and the knowledge. And this is a social justice issue that we should be asking our provincial government to provide the leadership to do the diagnostic screening. The Fraser Mustard Report said that an investment in our preschoolers, you know, a dollar when they're in preschool represents a saving. I think back then it was like nine or $11. Dollars. It's the same now. If we invest in screening in kindergarten, and if we train our teachers to be continuing of instruction to the end of grade three, we will save so much money in uh, social programs later on if those kids go on to reading failure and use social assistance. It's, it, it is incredibly logical to invest in our children and our teachers because teachers are the ones that we cannot blame our teachers. Um, Linda Siegel and Charles Ongel hired in to speak to one of the deans of education saying, can we change our program? I said, we don't have enough time. Well, that's 
that's something that we have to change. We have to make the time. And uh, that's where we need the teachers in business. You know, you look at people coming out with the BCom, Bachelor of Com Commerce. They've got some general knowledge, but they're not skilled in the business that they enter. And it's the same with teachers. They need more professional development once they hit school. And often the new teachers are put into kindergarten and grade one, and they haven't got the training. And many people criticize, uh, you know, boxed programs like Open Court or whatever that may have scripts. But once you practice a script enough, you get the hang of it. You see the spoken sequence. And so that, that's helpful. So, um, yeah, so I want to go back to the fact that you actually brought Frank Wood to British Columbia to speak about screaming. And you even had packages of, you had purchased or had funding for these packages to distribute to teachers. Now, I've used the predictive assessment of reading myself. It is a very straightforward tool that would not take very long to teach classroom teachers how to use. It does have a computer, it, you can do it on an iPad now, and it gives you the results. It tells you what students have risk factors for um, reading difficulties. It tells you the groups to put students in the class and it gives you the support and the resources that you can use within the classroom to help your students. So you are able to employ the MTSS model, the multi-tiered system of support. You have the information right there produced for you to do class-wide instruction. You know what groups you need to take out and what skills to focus on in those groups with the materials to do so and the ones that are going to need that more intensive one-on-one -on -one support. So it takes the guesswork out of there. Now, the predictive assessment of reading is commercially available. It does cost money. And I, I know a lot of districts are talking about, you know, creating their own measure or creating their own screening assessment. Now, the problem with that is it's not something you can just pull and put together. It does take a significant amount of research and looking at predictive validity right. and making sure that you're testing what you are saying you were testing. So. CARS was the most, most robust screening tool there was when I was taking Frank Wood around 2006 and 2008. Yeah, so again, uh, there, there are other, there are several screening measures that are available that are researched based that have the predictive ability that do the scoring for you. So you recognize what students, so it's not like there's just one option available. There are several options available that do have a slight fee. There are free ones available. Um, 
there's Dibbles. There is a new one. I'm pretty sure it's from Harvard. And this is something that, again, if you do the screening, it takes, you know, five or 10 minutes a student three times a year. So what you want to do is screen the student November in kindergarten. So they've had a little bit of instruction. And then again in February and then again in May. And then use that data to inform instruction and inform how to support the students. And this, again, is what we are advocating for in a structured language and literacy approach to teaching reading and in a science of reading approach to re teaching reading. Now, the one thing that we haven't spoken about yet is the BC or the British Columbia curriculum. Now, British Columbia isn't the only one who have a curriculum designed in the way that it currently is designed. It is a whole language or a balanced literacy approach to teaching reading. And it doesn't highlight the important um, aspects. Now, when we've talked, you know, behind closed doors in the past, it, it's looking at the chicken or the egg, right? So can you talk a little bit about, you know, Linda Siegel's report from 1999, how that played out. And it's not that the ministry hasn't known when it's creating the curriculums, right. what they should be doing and how uh, that informs teacher education programs and what's done in the classroom. Well, the, um, the special education, the BC special education Linda Siegel, we submitted um, our, our applications in 2009 and the report came out in 2000. And in it, she actually footnoted about the research in North Vancouver and used the term dyslexia. Nothing really came of that report that I'm aware of. You know, it just happened. Um, and um, then there was the there was also the, the early years report was in 1999, looking at the critical and sensitive periods of brain development for language. And then the National Reading Panel came out in 2000. Um, the uh, IDA, the International Dyslexia Association, came out with the, their position paper on informed language instruction for teacher preparation. Um, IDA, when um, Ashley sent out 5,000 copies of those, throughout the province to the ministries of education and mass education, all the primaries and all the elementary schools in the province, a copy to the principal, the learning assistance teacher and the DPAP chair. We sent out dyslexia packages um, to all the libraries, publications from the International Dyslexia Association. We did our webcasts, we had conferences, we had the Knowledge Net vignettes. So I believe, and, and then the documentary, um, that these all had millions of viewers, but there was no action. But what happened was changing results for young readers because there was the class, there was the legal case in BC about class sizes and the Supreme Court came down and um, the teachers got the right to have smaller class sizes. But the changing results through 
leaders came to, I think it was the liberal government trying to appease teachers. They put something like it was about $13 million in for them to study reading with your kids. But none of it in, was through a lens of reading instruction. It was on social emotional issues and computers and cultural. Teachers didn't even have to pretest their kids. They didn't have to say what they were gonna do. They didn't have to report it. And they got thousands of dollars to do this. And it's gone year after year and now it's evolved into something called changing results for young children. Um, what you find is like-minded individuals recruit like-minded individuals and we're not challenging them. And I think it's because well, we used to have the International Dyslexia Association in BC, and it it uh, broke up, I think, around 2008, because they didn't have enough volunteers to keep it going. And the Learning Disabilities Association of Canada has kind of broken down. Um, they have some chapters in BC, but they're even changing their names and having a different focus now, some of them. Um, one of them, though, is using Lexia, and you can get it, parents can get it on a monthly basis with an access, have access to a tutor. And that is a model that I feel that could be developed, and I have pitched it to a business association saying we should make um, computer-assisted literacy programs available to families as a health benefit because businesses are losing so much because they're parents are having to take time off school when kids are so frustrated and demoralized and stressed, they won't go to school or they have to take them for outside um, psychoeducational assessment. I love being part of the going to the president's meeting and finding out what they actually get in the states because it gave them something to hope for. Here in BC, there's only two psychoed assessments per school allowed per year. Some kids never get it, and it's the kids with behavioral problems who get it. So kids like you, <laughs> you don't, didn't act up at school. Um, you, you did get one, and I shouldn't say that. You, you finally did get one through the school, but others you got to pay for. Um, it's, it's very difficult, and this is a social equity issue, and this is something that was addressed by the right to read. I mean, what I am saying, and sometimes because of the information that I've shared has been US based, I think we need to counter any of those critiques by saying we're talking about the English language and the scientific and peer reviewed information. And so we can't, you can't say because it's American. We have, there are 44 sounds in the English language. Through, 44 in the states, I understand that Canada is more like 43 just because of our, the nuances in our pronunciation. But the key thing, the information is there. Um, and we shouldn't have to. Uh, the Voice of Evidence was a book that Peggy McCardell wrote. She used to be the head of the National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development. She wrote it with Shadra. And part of it was on lobbying and also the responsibility of government to use evidence-based. And we know this is required in medicine. We should be using it in education because dyslexia, if it, it affects severe dyslexia, three to five percent of children or individuals, it's lifelong. 
it's neurobiologically based, but it has an education treatment for remediation. And that's up to the teachers. The training of our teachers is key. And teachers don't know what they don't know. And then if their principals don't know about it either, then there might not be the leadership. That's why we have to lobby our provincial government on this, the way the Right to Read has done, and ask different levels of education, what are you doing? So this is what we do. Get our association of BC uh, Deans of Education, ABCDE, um, to get involved in saying, this is a priority, and it is your responsibility to ensure that in our faculties of education, every principal or school superintendent knows that what a Bachelor of Education means, and that particularly in primary education, that the teachers are coming out with knowledge about the science of reading. And this isn't just up for special education teachers, it's our classroom teachers. They are key, and we need to invest in them and value them. And keep them, because if they're going to have effective instruction, they're going to be happier um, in their jobs, and even anecdotally and even in research, we find that children who have learned to read have fewer behavioral problems. There's less social and fewer social emotional issues. And in the school learning home as well. Definitely. Now you have taken many approaches to try and fix this literacy problem. And you've even helped sponsor professional development for teachers. You've tried to get different programs within various school boards. What opposition have you faced? Well, fortunately, I, when we gave the International Dyslexia Association sponsored their conferences, people wanted it as well. Um, I've hosted dinner, uh, once hosted the dinner when we had Paul Worthington in and had school principals and teachers to talk about it. And they found it inspiring uh, because that's where Zoom, we don't always get the one-to-one -one interaction that we can inspire some people. But I have to admit, I'm, I'm not a wealthy woman, but I'm very comfortable. And this was a passion for me. And at one point, um, it was bad timing. Um, I offered to sponsor the predictive assessment of reading in the Vancouver School District in the five um, schools, the Windermere High School set of elementary schools. And Nancy Young helped write the proposal that we would pay to screen all the children in about six schools in kindergarten the first year. The second year we would do kindergarten grade one and the third year kindergarten grade three. I would pay for the screening tool. And if we gave them the training on the problems like professional day and another day, I would have asked the school district if they would, you know, cover the second day and also the the um, teachers for um, the on-call teachers to sub for the teachers doing the screening so they could get to know the kids. We had some people who wanted to do it, but unfortunately it was the timing of the Supreme Court decision that came down and there weren't enough substitute teachers 
or even teachers for that matter. So it was bad timing. Some people wanted to do it, but um, they knew I was coming from a place of wanting to help kids. And I helped uh, in the learning assistance classroom. I helped sponsor getting Orton Gillingham based drill cards that Tyson used and produced and would sell at cost. Um, and they help the children through their multisensory methods because we know at that point that the multisensory portion was important to get, get into kinesthetic muscle memories. Um, although the structured literacy approach was the one that's most important. And, um, I took, when we took the car around to the Vancouver School District, um, the person who was coming director instruction to find it. We approached the Minister of Education and she was a physician at the time and the response was that she didn't sell it hard enough. Um, speaking, speaking to someone who's first in the medical model. I have to say when we did the vignettes, we had um, then there was the early childhood person. She they gave us money from the ministry to do those celebrations. Uh, success in literacy. Um, when I was at the family literacy events as city councilor in Westminster, we had a committee there, and he asked me to speak to the Fraser Mustard Report overview. And they brought together the health region, the school district, and the social committee talk about literacy so they during family literacy did a lot and they got businesses involved one thing i did was with literacy bc is um, help sponsor family literacy speakers so we had structured literacy speakers come in to speak but i also was able to go to england to study um in birmingham england where um, adult literacy was a huge thing so they got businesses involved because kids who don't learn in school end up being adults who can't read. And I just looked at an ABC Canada report that came through this morning that we still have 48% of Canadian adults with difficulty with their ability. In BC, it's 43%. And uh, we need to get governments involved and invest in the children. Um, even businesses to invest in the children and, and also our newspapers. I mean, they, they want readers. We have um, in Vancouver had uh, an annual thing sponsored by our newspapers, but it's often publishers who sponsor the reports that don't really have a full understanding. So, so let's just need to do to more. Let's go back to that 48% of Canadians not reading proficiently. Yeah. So if, if we take that number, that means basically half of Canadians are not proficient readers. And a, a big um, push for the balanced literacy approach is teaching children the joy of reading. Yeah. And a, a thing, a, a lot of, parents here if their child is struggling with reading is well you're not reading enough to them at home well when it's a parent who can't read how are they supposed to do so and 
you know, thinking back to John Corcoran, who uh, you've known on a personal level, uh, in his book, The Teacher That Couldn't Read, he talks about how, you know, for a period, his wife and his kids didn't know that he couldn't read because he knew the stories so well. And he'd tell them and elaborate on them. But then one day his kids brought him a story from the library that he didn't know. So he oh, don't skin. <laughs> yeah. And it highlights the fact that if parents aren't readers or not comfortable reading the books to the stories, even though their children bring home reading home, or they have books sent home for them to read, it's not going to be a priority. A parent who can't read or struggles with reading is not going to be comfortable reading with their child. And if they have the negative experience and association with learning to read, they're not going to have the same buy-in or ability to support their child. And yeah. it is the responsibility of the public education system and the teachers to teach reading, not the parents. Because and you cannot blame socioeconomic standing or their postal code or zip code. It is the quality of teaching. All children can learn to read, even those with severe dyslexia. And it is using evidence-based instruction. John Corkin is coming out with a film. It's out, but it's not broadcast yet called The Truth About Reading. And one of the people interviewed saying it's like you're out there waiting the cure for cancer in front of somebody who can't read and not giving it to them. And I used to equate it to when I was helping my kids and giving talks to diabetes. It's like you take your child in and they get diagnosed with you, you know, the diabetes and then you tell them, good luck. It, it's an invisible disability. We don't have the poster kids with you know, that you can see what their disability is, which I don't like that term. John Corkin likes subliterate. They take a little longer to learn how to read and they have a great ability to learn. We've shown that and other people have shown that with multiple degrees, et cetera. Um, it, so, oh, I just lost my train of thought. It's okay, but you can't blame. It's it, it's the teachers, and you, it's good to feed them. We've just had an announcement about feeding kids. We have to do that, but we have to give them good information as well. And I just remembered Keith Stanovich's natural effect: the rich get richer because if they know how to read, they read more, they learn more about the world, and those who cannot read do not read, and they rely on media, on television and the media and the computers and assistive technology, um, but that's not enough. And they, the gift of reading, as John says, it fills a hole in their soul because they go through life feeling inadequate. And, and then this other one, David Chalk, used to have doctors and leaders who their generation may not know of, but he was a multi-millionaire. And I spoke with him and he did a wonderful interview on this dyslexia on the um, Knowledge Network webcast. He was interviewed by Abilities Magazine sharing about his dyslexia. But he never shared that then that he couldn't actually read. He could use assistive technology and everything. And 
He called me a few years ago and said, I almost died and I need to learn. And he did. And because adults learn faster and they can learn the pattern recognition and, and, and uh, spellings, he learned very quickly. But I, I taught, and this is only anecdotal, but I taught a girl in a recovery program, a young woman who was in special education her whole life. And I just taught her a couple of hours a day, twice a week. And she learned the code, you know, basically had a decode and spelling a bit, but mostly to read. She became, was a non-reader in the recovery discussion groups. And then she became a reader. But I didn't get to continue with her, but she had comprehend, reading comprehension issues. But at least she could read. And she had, she could read a menu. She could do more things. It's just as important to teach an adult how to read it as a child. But even our adult literacy programs are whole language. And they're getting so much federal funding that at least in adult literacy, we can use the, go to the federal bureaucrats um, and try and use the right to read recommendations to them as well, because it's, it's sad to see some of the stuff that's happening in adult literacy. They need, and they have tutors who want it as well. But as John Corkin says at the end of this film, this, we can't rely on volunteers to change this. This is where we need to have um, concerted effort and leadership from our provincial government and our national government. Yeah, so if, if there was one thing you really wanted people to take away from our conversation uh, and move forward with, um, what would it be? First of all, if you have dyslexia in your family, there is no shame in having dyslexia. There is a remedy for it. It takes extra work and time. And that there's hope there are ways to help whoever your child or parent or loved one is. Secondly, if you are a teacher, we believe in you. You do not have to be ashamed if you were never trained in the science of reading. Be bold and come forth and say, I don't have this knowledge and I want it. I want people in faculties of education to recognize if they don't know how to do it either, because that's where the leadership is. This is something that we have to identify a problem and there's no shame in saying, I don't have this knowledge and let's work together to gain it. We, cannot, we can't keep it under the carpet all the time and not address it. So, in British Columbia and in any other province in Canada, because education is a provincial issue, you have to take this to the political level in elections. Parents have to come together and we have to learn from other groups that basically protested in a way. Um, we have to maybe get some help from some marketing companies to create something. Um, it's stand up. We, we, the Helen Reddy song I mentioned in the last one. Um, Jim, there's a movie I just found out about called Teachers. It's Nick Nolte in it. And Brian Adams and Jim Valance wrote a song called Teacher, Teacher. Can you teach me? Can you teach me what I need to know? Um, 
the teachers, um, maybe it's about suing teachers who didn't graduate a student with literacy. You know, it's not the teacher's entire fault. It is, there is professional responsibility. Um, so my message is, don't be ashamed to say if you don't know how to teach it. Gather together a group of people and your principal, speak to your superintendents, your BC associates and superintendents, and speak to their minister of education and advanced education and let's work together. Businesses need to come on board. The state of Vancouver Board of Trade has stated how we have to work on work skills and we have to ensure that our children are getting the best literacy instruction they can. We have to wait for the new International Adult Literacy Survey is a new name, but the report of it, it's only done once every 10 years. There should be a report coming out next year. Um, but it's more, we have to get out there. We have to make noise. We do, and, and that's the goal of this uh, podcast and recognizing, I, I know one of the things that you did mention is a lot of things are put down in Canada as being American or from different places around the world. Now, last year on February 28th, the Ontario Human Rights Commission came out mm -hmm. with the right to read in public inquiry. And while originally the inquiry was focused on students with dyslexia, not getting the support that they need within the classroom to learn how to read, the report addresses all students within the classroom and has um, recommendations specifically targeting, targeting students who have a First Nations, Métis, or Inuit background. And we can do better. We should do better. And it's time to, you know, explain and insist that our children are getting better our teenagers are getting the support that they need and not just handed assistive technology that will be taken away from them when they graduate. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll be forced to provide it or attain it themselves, which realistically, if you're illiterate and not able to get a job, how are you going to afford the, the tablet or the uh programs that you need to have access to reading. And this is why we need to get need to get business on board and social um, assistance programs to start using some computer technology and having tutors around. It takes a long time. Um, so we have to hold their feet to the fire. I think we also have to get the media involved the reporting, doing consumer complaints perhaps maybe bring it out into the open and having more of a discussion, but we have an election coming up in the fall. Um, unfortunately, you know, I'm not in a position to help rally the troops other than maybe something like this, but you're able to do it, but we need to create a nonprofit to help advance this. And maybe the teachers to the BCPF, they, they should be speaking about the fact that teachers are not getting trained. And um, it, it's, let's just address the problem. 
we're not we're not fixing blame. We're trying to fix the problem. Um, just be serious. And as David Chalk, when he responded to a premiere of the Truth About Eating, he said he didn't know about whole language or phonics or reading words or anything like that. He said, but here we have the science of eating. Can't we approach this one love? Can't we? It's a social, it's a socially responsible thing to do. It's like medicine. We have universal medicine. We should have universal education. Literacy. We're supposed to have. Yeah. And also what I want to address is the term literacy. It's been usurped from people when we're, they're talking about vocabulary or communication. And I did that throughout my thing. They were teaching people to do videos or something um, or movies on something. Said, so, well, you're not teaching me to fill out a job application. But when you're talking about fi getting financial literacy, you're giving them a whole language approach with vocabulary you're teaching. If you are truly teaching someone to read, write, and spell, they are literate and they can learn on any subject independently. So health literacy, we shouldn't be just giving them a few vocabulary words. We should give them the ability to read the, the information on a pill bottle on their own and reading formula to know how to do things. Now, let's just address that. Literacy is being an independent, competent reader. Thank um, you so much. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I am thrilled with what you're doing for this right to initiative. Uh, I'm very hopeful that your colleagues help inspire others and that you continue to as well. I'm grateful to um, everyone that helped you along the way and along the way and will continue to help you It's a very special cause. It's in your heart. It's in your blood. We shouldn't be seeing these children suffer. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.